Good morning. Hey, well done. My name is Brandon, uh, one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. As you said, we're in a series uh, going through the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was this uh, letter written from a man named Paul to a church that was about five years old in the city of Corinth. And this week, Paul is going to, the author, going to take us back where he began the letter. And so here's, here's how it all began. We began by saying that the, the letter to, of 1 Corinthians is not, not a set of individual teachings, and it's not primarily a set of teachings for individuals, but it's a book about community formation. Who are we going to be? And we said that Paul was writing in response to two issues. One, the, the surface issue, one, the symptom issue, and then one, the deeper issue. The, the surface issue, the one sitting on top, was that division had crept into the church. But underneath it, underneath that symptom issue, was a deeper issue that the city or the church of Corinth was learning how to live more from the city of Corinth than they were from Christ. They were taking their communal cues from their city, not from their Savior. And so this week, Paul, going right back to the both presenting issue and the deeper issue by correcting the way that they take communion. And so for us to uh, understand the passage, we uh, we, we need to address a common misunderstanding about spirituality, about the nature of, uh, of spirituality. And the common misunderstanding is this, that there's the physical world, and it's bad. And then there's the spiritual world, and it's good. And the goal of spirituality is to escape the trappings and the problems of the physical world. Um, it it, it kind of functions like this, that to, to be truly spiritual, you've got to be able to dichotomize Physical from the spiritual. This is, a, this is an ancient philosophy, an ancient religious thought that has uh, modern, uh, modern implications and applications today. And so I want to tell you one way that it's influenced Christianity. How many of you guys have ever heard this? I'm going to ask you to raise your hands in a minute, and there's no judgment. I have said what I'm about to ask you if you have heard. How many of you guys have heard? When, when it comes to communion, it's just bread, it's just wine. No, nobody's ever heard that? My gosh. Um, okay, I've said it a lot, all right? And here's the question I'm wondering. Does the Bible, does the Bible ever treat it as just bread or just wine? And I think before we hit our chapter 11, we need to answer that question. To answer that question, we need to start in the Old Testament, work our way from the Old Testament all the way to 1 Corinthians 10. We will do it quick. So in the Old Testament, there was this event uh, where Israel, the, the nation of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, they were slaves in Egypt, and God came and said, hey, listen, I'm going to deliver you out of your slavery, and here, here's the way that I'm going to do it. I want you guys to, to get your families together, you're going to have a meal. You're going to take a lamb, and you're going to slay the lamb. You're going to have a, a meal, eat the lamb, and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost, and then I'm going to send the angel of death, and he's going to come in there, and when he sees the blood on the doorpost, he's going to pass over you. And that night, I'm going to deliver you out of bondage and slavery to the Egyptians. And then, uh, and he did, and then immediately, almost uh, Exodus 12, Moses, the, the leader of the nation at the time, said, hey, here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to establish a meal. We're going to call this meal the Passover meal. And in that meal, it's going to be a perpetual memorial to God's deliverance. And when they ate that meal, there was this line that they said. They, they, they held bread, and they ate the bread, and they said, this is the um, bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the wilderness. 
Well, the point was that when they were eating this bread, there was a high level of identification with those who actually took, uh, partook in the exodus out of Egypt. And so we come forward, and it was during this meal, this Passover meal, that Jesus gathered his disciples together, and he launched into this meal. But here's the thing. He made some changes to it. Rather than saying, uh, this is the bread of our affliction that we ate in the wilderness, he, he held up bread, and he said, hey, this bread, this is my body. This is the bread of my affliction given for you. And so the bread that the Israelites would say we ate in the wilderness becomes the bread of communion that we eat. And then we fast forward in Acts 2 and we see that communion, this communal meal becomes the foundational practice in the church. 242, it says, devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. This is a reference to the communion table. Almost universal commentators will agree. And then by Acts 20, we see communion being the weekly practice of the church. It says that on the first day of the week, when gathered together to break bread. And so the weekly practice of the church becomes gathering on Sundays for the purpose of the table. And then we move all the way up to 1 Corinthians 10, one chapter before our text today. And we see what the Bible says is happening when you eat the bread, when you drink of the wine, when you come to the table. This is what the Bible believes is happening. There's two things. One, vertical, you and God, us and God, I should say. One, horizontal. And so, uh, 1016, here's the vertical. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The word participation, it's koinonia, better understood, a communal participation in the body and the blood of Christ. One theologian puts it like this. That word, the word participation, conveys the idea of a communal participation, an active, common share in the life, death, resurrection, and presence of Jesus Christ. There's union with Christ by means of participation in the Lord's Supper. But when you eat of the bread, when you come to the table, you experience a communal participation in the body and blood, the death of Jesus. When you come to the table and you eat of the bread and you drink of the cup, you are experiencing your union with Christ. And when you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, there is a mysterious vertical dimension that stretches its way up into the heavens. And this vertical, this vertical participation, mysterious participation becomes the basis and foundation for the horizontal in verse 17. It says, because there is one bread. And listen to the language of this verse. Listen to the language of this verse. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Because there is one bread, therefore we are all one body. Do you notice it did not say we're one body and because we're one body, there is one bread. Do you notice it says because there is one bread, we are one body. The bread is the formative causal effect in the text. Because we are one bread, we are one body who partake of the one Bread, how is this possible? Because there is one Christ serving one meal to one people. It's the horizontal. We are united with the global and historic church because there is one bread. And there's one bread because there's one Christ and the one Christ forms one people. And at the table we experience our oneness with Christ and our oneness with the global and historic church. 
And they are glorious mysteries at this table and armed with these mysteries. Armed with these mysteries, both vertical and horizontal, we come to our text in chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. In the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, I need your eyes to hone in on two words, come together. It's a, uh, I thought about having us all say the Greek word together. I thought that'd be fun. I chose not to. Uh, but five times we're going to see this phrase, come together. It's one word translated. It becomes a thread that runs through the passage. It's what holds it together and gives a thrust of its primary point. Now, when you come together, this text is primarily about what happens when you come together. And right out of the gate, I mean, feel the weight of Paul's words right here. Right out of the gate, when you come together, it's actually for the worse. It's almost as if he's saying, it would be better if you just didn't. When you come together, not for the better, it's actually for the worse. The question is, how could the church come together in such a way that Paul, who was the planter, the one who started this church, would say it's actually for the worse. How? Verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Stop right there. Here's the answer. How? It's when you come together and you come together divided. And he's going to expand on this in a minute, but that dividing line inside the church at the table was was along economic lines. It was along the lines of the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. And Paul is going to give two warnings for those coming to the table divided as a church. He's going to give two warnings, one to individuals, one to the church as a whole. Both are going to be sobering and serious. First one to individuals. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe in part that there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So I'm, this is Paul. I'm not for divisions. In fact, I, I don't want the church to be divided. Jesus prayed that we would be united. I want the church united. I, I'm not for divisions, but, but the, the divisions that exist, the factions that exist, will help identify those whose faith in Christ is genuine and those whose is not, and this is such a serious warning that I, I want us to hear from a guy named Gordon Fee, theologian, how this fits in the broader narrative of the Bible. This is what he says about Paul's line right here. He says, in keeping with the teaching of Jesus, Paul expected divisions to accompany the ends. Divisions that would separate true believers from those who are false. Paul, therefore, probably sees their present divisions as part of the divine testing, sifting process already at work in their midst. Such divisions have the net effect of revealing those who are genuinely Christ's, and the proof lies not in correct belief system, in a correct belief system, but in behavior that reflects the gospel. Sober and serious. And here's the point. Point is this, that, that you can treat the church in such a way that you evidence that you're not part of the church. You can evidence by how you treat the church, that you are not part of the church. Why would Paul bring and treat this so seriously? Because Paul was as educated as there was um, crafting the early church in the 
Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament. And, and, and here's what Paul knows. Paul knows that from beginning to end in the Bible, evidence of true piety, of true faith, that you care for the poor. Evidence of wickedness, that you would oppress the poor. And how you treat the poor is evidence. How you treat those who are without is evidence of faith, or it can be evidence of a lack thereof. Very serious stuff from Paul. Now the second warning, and the one that's for the whole church, verse 20. When you come together, here's that word again. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Let me translate that. This is Paul saying to the church in Corinth that if Jesus were to show up, he would look and say, that's not my table. That's just not my table. You know, you got bread, you've got wine there, but I'm not there. That's not my table. Why? Because any meal that highlights division is not a meal hosted by Jesus. Any meal that highlights cultural, economic, ethnic, you fill in the blank division is not a meal hosted by Jesus. Any meal intended to separate the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots, not a meal hosted by Jesus. And now he drills in a little bit deeper, verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat in, eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. No, I will not. So here's what was happening. The, the early church in these days, um, they were meeting in the homes of, of the more affluent members because the homes were larger and they could fit more people. But the way that they took communion was almost a direct imitation of cultural Corinthian meals. You see, in cultural Corinth, uh, it, it was all about, I climb the ladder, I climb the ladder, I climb the ladder, I climb the ladder, and then cultural events were intended to highlight where you were on the ladder. And so meals in Corinth, cultural meals, were intended to separate the rich and the poor. And what you would do is you would seat people based on uh, their economic status. You had the room for the rich, and everyone else was outside. And then you would serve the rich first, and they'd get the good stuff. If they were all full, and you had leftovers of the good food, you might hand that off to the poor. But generally speaking, you just had kind of scraps for them. This was Corinth. This was their city. It was a common practice. And that common Corinthian practice is being brought into the church. These meals highlighted class distinction is essentially what was going on. And here's the best way I think I could try to illustrate it. Imagine if we took communion like this. We have three lines for communion. One, two, three. Aisle one, aisle two, aisle three. Imagine if we said, when you come in, here's what you're going to do. Um, you know, if, if, if you make above a certain dollar amount, this is your section. And this is your table. And we've got good stuff waiting for you. And we, we've got Dodds. We've got one of our pastors who's just, you know, if you need a counseling session, he's going to be here for you. And, and then if you're middle, middle class, we've got a bigger section for you guys. And we, we don't have as good a bread, but, you know, it's not terrible, right? It's not like we bought it. 
And then there's the far line. This is for the poor. So if you're poor, if you make below a certain amount, you sit over here uh, and, and you go over there. And no, we didn't buy that bread. We, we actually just found it um, somewhere. But hey, be thankful you've got food at all. Can you imagine Jesus walking into that room? Can you imagine how that would break the heart of God? This is what was happening in the church in Corinth. And it was, and that would be if we were doing that, symptomatic of the deeper issue. The deeper issue that we are certainly and clearly not taking our communal cues from Christ. The one who was eternally rich who gave himself and became poor. We would be taking our cues from our climb the ladder city. You imagine that would break the heart of God to see division inside the church at his table. This is what was happening in Corinth. So now Paul goes directly to the words that Jesus said about this meal, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, pause, pause. See the word betrayed on there? We, we have said this throughout the series. Uh, we've said it a lot. You, you can't read the Bible like a legal brief. It's not a legal brief. I'm for the legal profession, but the Bible is not a legal brief. It was written by God, through people, for people. Imagine what it felt like to be one of the ones who are the outsider inside your community. Imagine you, one of the Corinthian Christians, who get this letter from Paul, who felt excluded by the community you thought was going to include you. And you read it, feeling betrayed by this community that you're a part of, and you read on the night when he was betrayed, oh, how you would have felt knowing Jesus has been there. Like put yourself in their shoes and read the Bible from their shoes and feel what they would have felt. I think it's radically important that we know how to do that in order to read the Bible because the entire heart of the gospel is the God who put himself in your shoes. That's a side note. Keep going. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus takes bread. And he holds it up and he says, this is my body given for you. This is my body. Is it symbolic when he says, this is my body and he's holding up bread? Of course it's symbolic. Jesus is sitting there with a body and he's holding up bread and they're not the same thing. But he also said, it is my body. He did not say it's like my body. <laughs> Jesus was not ignorant he was not unable to say, it is like my body. Could have if he wanted to, but he didn't. He said, this is my body. What does that mean? I don't know. But I do know this. I want to take it seriously. I don't want to just dismiss it because I'm modern and Western and things have to fit in my linear understanding of the world and my separation of the physical and the spiritual. But when paired with chapter 10, it seems like when he's saying that this is my body and he's saying this is one bread, what we do know is that there is a glorious and beautiful mystery. And that mystery is that in some sense Christ is present with us in the meal. And there has been a lot of ink spilled over the last 2,000 years getting mystery out of the Bible and getting mystery off of the table. But I think that we would see the Bible and the table far more glorious and beautiful if we would just embrace mystery and not be afraid of it, we might, we might, which by the way, the word mystery is used like 
40 to 60 times. I looked it up and I don't remember the number now, but 40 to 60 times in the Bible. And we might more fully understand what Ephesians calls the mystery of Christ, the mystery that on the cross Jesus was separated so the church would be united, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, black and white, Indian and Pakistani, that the church would be united, one global community. And now the cup. Verse 25, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So in that language again, I'm not going to get rid of mystery from the Bible. The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And in the way that this is, this language that Jesus uses that Paul re-articulates here, he's fusing together two ideas from the Old Testament. One from Jeremiah 31, when the nation of Israel, the people of God, were in exile. And he said, hey, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to give you a home and a land and a place. I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And he's fusing that with Exodus 24, which is not long after God gave the Ten Commandments, the blood of the covenant that the Lord made with you. And in bringing these two together, he's looking into the Ten Commandments and he's saying, hey, listen, I, I did it for you. I obeyed them fully for you. No, you didn't. No, you haven't. No, you won't. I did it for you. I lived up to God's expectations on your behalf. I lived the life that you couldn't live. And then he looked into Israel in exile and said, hey, listen, you're not going to be in exile forever. I'm going to be a homeland for you. I'm going to be a place, a home, a safe place for you. And when you come to the table every week, when you walk out of your seat, down the aisle, you come to the table, you are reminded by Jesus that he, he did it all and therefore you are accepted by God. You don't have to keep trying to earn it. You don't have to keep doing and doing and doing to be acceptable to God. You are acceptable to God only because of what Jesus has done. And so you can come to the table and feast and rest in that, that you don't have to earn your acceptance and you come and you're reminded that you've got a home with him. That you've got a home with him. You've got a eternal home waiting, and it's with him. And this is a home that all are welcomed to, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. All are welcome to come and live together, the gospel, to live in a family without distinction, where one group is not elevated over another group. See, at the heart of the gospel is a God who is eternally rich becoming poor, so that those of us who are spiritually poor could become eternally rich. If that's the heart of the gospel, if that's what's being held up in the bread and in the cup, how in the world could the poor ever be excluded from this meal? How could you ever use this meal then as a chance to divide along economic lines? You can't. You can't, which is why I think he goes where he does in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when you come and you partake of the bread and you partake of the cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death. But you know what it says, until he comes? Why until he comes? Why, why does that have to be there? It could have, could have simply said, you proclaim the Lord's death. Why until he comes? Do you know what's going to happen when he comes? It's called the wedding supper of the lamb. When he comes, you know what we're going to have? A meal. A glorious and beautiful meal. A meal where at that table, there will be no distinction. Rich, poor, 
everyone's got an equal seat at the table. There are no dividing lines. There are no more tears. There's no more heartache. There's no more insecurity. There's no more anxiety. It will just be a beautiful, common meal where we are together. No outsiders, no haves, no have nots. The wedding supper of the Lamb is coming, and this meal is meant to be a foretaste of the meal that is to come. To steal a line from Tim Keller, this is a communal meal that's meant to be the hors d'oeuvres of your future bliss. It's meant to be a little taste. As we come together, Paul's point, as we come together and we come to the table, it's meant to be a communal foreshadow of the meal that is to come. The glorious day when we hold up the good stuff and we dine with our King and God at this table saying to you, and he's saying to me, I am unconditionally committed to getting you from this meal to that one. Stop trying to earn your way to that meal. I'm going to get you from this meal to that one. And hey, Corinth, start reflecting my heart at that table. But they weren't. The reality is that Corinth was, they, they were taking their cues from weddings down the street more than the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so now he goes back to a warning in verse 27. Whoever therefore, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Saying you can't eat in an unworthy manner and in doing so you bring guilt upon your so, therefore, when you eat and drink, discern the body. So what, what does it mean to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? It means to eat and drink, as he's been addressing, in a way that highlights distinction inside the church, in a way that highlights and exalts particular members and oppresses and separates others. The way that you eat and drink judgment on yourself is to come to the table divided. If I could say it this way, it's to eat the bread in such a way that you split the one bread back into two. If you're coming to the table in such a way that you are taking the one bread and tearing it into your eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. And when it says to discern the body, that's why this is not a reference to the body of Jesus or to communion. If it was, it would say discern the body and the blood. It would go eat and drink, discern the body and blood, but it doesn't. It says eat and drink, discern the body. It means to have a rich, full understanding of the church. It's a communal statement. That's why Michelle Lee Barnwall, professor, um, I think very rightly puts it like this, that Paul's words do not command that believers examine themselves for personal sin, although that's not a bad idea. In fact, generally, it's a good idea. Rather, they admonish the whole church to ensure they represent a welcoming community, especially to the outcasts of society. The church must not resemble the world by giving preference to the accomplished or wealthy. Rather, the church must remember that all people, no matter your status, I inserted that, receive salva salvation through God's grace. But to eat and drink in a worthy manner is to come to the table reflecting God's heart for all people, rich, implore, Jew, Gentile, you fill in the blank. God's heart for all people. But again, since it wasn't happening, Paul now gives insight into why something else was happening. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. 
But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So he's, he's saying, because of the way that you take the table, some of you have gotten sick and some have died. Remember last week when he we said we're hitting a few chapters where it's kind of tough to understand what Paul's talking about? Here we go. Gordon Fee, though, I think, right, the, uh, this is an ad hoc reflection on their own situation, and he opens up by saying, most likely Paul is referencing, and anytime you've got a theologian of the caliber of Gordon Fee starting a line with most likely, you know it's difficult to understand what's happening. But most likely, says Paul by the Spirit, is giving divine insight into the cause and effect between two independent realities. You, you came to the table, uh, you've um, abused at the table, and now some of you are sick. Some have even died. Do I fully understand what's happening here? Not at all, but here's what I do know. Here's what I do know is clear out of this text, that God takes how you treat his church seriously. God, treats how you, God takes how you treat his table seriously. How you treat his people, how you treat his table are no um, laughing matter for him. That's what I do know. And now he finishes back where he began, verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. But the other things I will give directions when I come. When you come together, wait for one another. Wait for one another. Don't, hey, Rich, don't, don't show up hungry. Go, go to the back room, grab all the, the bread, scarf it down, drink all the wine, and show up drunk when everyone else gets there. Right? If you got food at home, eat food at home, and then come to the gathering. When you come together, actually come together. Why is this so important for Paul? Why is it so important for Paul that, that the, the way you take communion matters? Because the Lord's Supper, this what this bread and what this cup represent, it is not just any meal, it is the meal. It's the meal. It's not just any meal, it's the meal with one common table, with one bread, one common cup through which we proclaim that through the death of Christ, we who are many are one body. You see, for Paul, for Paul, here's what we, here's what we know. Not just that you take the meal, but how you take the meal matters. It doesn't just matter to him that you come to the table, but it matters to him that you come to the table in such a way that reflects God's heart for all people, rich and poor, and displays the unity and the oneness of the church and the inclusivity of the gospel. It matters to Paul that when you take and partake of the table that you are displaying the inclusivity of the gospel. The gospel is inclusive of all walks of people, rich and poor, and it is not a divider along economic or ethnic lines. And it's inclusive. Brings you together, oneness at the table. The unity of the church is meant to be displayed in the unity of the table. And so, in, in the coming months, we're planning to make some changes for the way that we take communion around here to more faithfully follow the pattern Jesus set forward and more faithfully, we believe, display God's heart for our unity inside the church. But let me close by saying this. This, this passage was a rebuke to the church in Corinth, and I think that we need to read it and 
feel the rebuke that Paul meant for the church in Corinth, but I also think that this passage ought to be an encouragement to you. We don't do everything well around here. You don't do everything well around here, but we do this well. You do this well. A community where rich and poor are shoulder to shoulder in Christ, in the gospel, and no one is given preferential treatment because of their economic status, you do that well, and it is beautiful to see. One of the most glorious things I have seen in our community in the four years I've been with you is the way that you live this out. It is beautiful. You ought to feel the rebuke to the church in Corinth, but in that rebuke, you ought to feel encouraged. We ought to feel encouraged. It's beautiful to see. Communion, not just any meal, the meal. The meal where God looks you in the eye and says, you've got a home with me. And I'm going to get you from this meal to the next one. Let's pray. Father, I do hope that we see your table, this table, the table, uh, with all the richness and beauty that you long for us and intend for us to see in it. May we not be afraid of the mystery of this table. May we embrace the mystery of this table. May that mystery lead us deeper into the mystery of Christ's Rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, united in one body. And may mystery at this table lead us in the mystery of Christ. And the mystery of Christ lead us more deep and rich into being the kind of community that you long for us to be. One where there are no divisions along economic lines. Ones where we, one where we live as one people, one body, who partake of the one bread. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.